Welcome to the Actors' Equity podcast series. In 2014, Actors' Equity celebrates its 75th birthday, and over the coming months we will bring to you an oral history collected over the past years which celebrates the achievements and milestones of actors. We will bring to you insights and observations from performers about their profession and why they value their union membership. Quite by accident at age 14, I say by accident because I had no intention of being a professional performer. I'd learned piano and singing and it was a nice hobby, but I really wanted to continue school and become a doctor. So um, I, um, anyway, along the way I had a hit record, but, uh, and I was just young, 14. My father, at the very, you know, mention of that I was going to be performing, he said, you ought to join the union. And um, he was very much a labour man and uh, he was a unionist and he said uh, that's it you've got to join the union they'll look after you because you know there are people in the world who might want to rip you off etc and not mindlessly but you know without questioning it I that's how I was brought up dad met me one day after school and took me in my Sydney girls high beret and gloves and we walked from the school at Moore Park into Pitt Street where Actors' Equity was at the time. All the way, Dad told me about the benefits of belonging to a union girl. He said, uh, some terrible people in the world, and there are some lovely people, but it's the terrible people you need protection from. You know, you need to be uh, looked after. And I don't know if I took all that much notice, but uh, he was right, of course, because um, having uh, joined up, it was very soon after that I really did need the union's help because... People, I think because at that time my parents were looking after my bookings and perhaps they were seen as easy targets as well as I was definitely an easy target and people either responded with the money or were very late paying or didn't pay me enough or or whatever, never to be seen again. You know, there were lots of overnight agents that didn't pay me and without fail the union helped me every single time I got my money back so... I got my money and I was always paid and I thought they were terrific people who cared. It was really good. Mm. My intention was to um, one day go back to school and <laughs> go to uni. Of course, none of it happened because I was really working very hard as a professional performer and touring Australia uh, everywhere. I went to every state and um, bear in mind I'd been nowhere as a kid. I think uh, I went to see visit an auntie and uncle in Melbourne once you know we never had money for holidays so suddenly I was traipsing all over the place and my mum could come with me and um, we were very working class there was never enough money so for mum to be jumping on and off planes with me was a real buzz for her too so if you can imagine this great change of lifestyle for a young kid and her you know mum we were agog at the whole uh, goings-on. But um, it was in 1966 that Mum had a call from the government and because uh, people were still ringing home, even though by that time I did have an agent. And uh, they asked Mum for her permission to send her daughter to Vietnam to entertain the troops. And uh, I was home that day and I, I know that she was really shocked and she said... Oh, oh, I'd have to speak to her father about that. We'd have to speak about that. We'd, 
I can tell you we don't believe in Australia's involvement in the war. And she was quite, I suppose, a little outspoken, really, that, to, to have said that. Um, afterwards, we sat down, you know, at the dining table and talked about it, and my father was not furious, but he was incredibly anti our involvement and it wasn't our war to fight, blah, blah, blah. And I must remember to say that just a couple of months earlier, my brother, who had turned 19, his number or his marble, you know, the bizarre ballot, his number had not come up. And um, so I think they were just getting over that, that, that uh, he wasn't going to war, but there was the daughter being asked to go. And uh, we sat around the table and I actually... Dad was really adamant, that was that. Mum was like mum, you know, oh, might be good for her and, you know, that famous line of my mother's, I think we can trust this man who rang love, she said to Dad, after all he is from the government, you know, which was... We still laugh about that and she was so sincere, you know, because I was her baby girl and mums always want what their kids want, all that stuff, and uh, she thought that would be part of life's rich tapestry. Yeah, it was... And, of course, the war wasn't reported in the newspapers the way wars are now. We weren't bombarded with, you know, bodies everywhere and mayhem. So we knew very little about the war except that my family thought we shouldn't be there. Um, I, of course, was 17 and I felt really well-travelled, you know, except I hadn't been overseas. I think... No, I think I've been to Manly. No, but I hadn't been anywhere, you know, exotic. So all I wanted to do was get on a big plane and go overseas. That was my reason. And eventually I did... It's awful to say, but I conned my father... And I said, Dad, you know, in Vietnam, just like us, there are lots of young fellas there, young men and women who don't want to be there too. And, you know, as the man from the government said, we could lift their morale. <laughs> it's really funny when you think of it like that. But um, I got my way, you know, and I went to Vietnam and I was with Cold Joy and the Joy Boys and they were very protective of me and there was a commanding officer whose duty it was to, you know, just look after us. Um, it was vastly different from how it had been reported in the papers. It was a fair income war, there was no doubt about it. And unlike other wars, you know, people didn't know exactly who they were fighting, who was the enemy, who wasn't the enemy. Um, there were some horrific things that I saw whilst there. It was a dreadful time, and yet, as far as our performances are concerned, it was a great time, you know. We did lift their morale, and we did have a great time, and we were well looked after. Um, I suppose I, it made me think, too, because I ended up spending a lot of time on my own. The Australian government, in their wisdom thought it would be best if, because I was a girl and everyone else was a boy, that I shouldn't stay at the same place as them. So for a young kid that was rather daunting and I ended up staying separately from them on most occasions. So 
had a lot of thinking time and, um, you know, I suppose I started to think in a philosophical and sometimes political way and I thought about all the young Vietnamese people who I'd met who were... Um, I think the thing that really impressed me and, and made an impression regarding the young Vietnamese people was the fact that they could sit in the gutter of a, you know, a six-lane road and do their homework and because they didn't have a desk and they didn't have a nice house and, uh, you know, I used to complain because I didn't have my own room but there they were not complaining about anything and then going along and passing exams and doing well, all this in the middle of a war. So it was... I was an impressionable vulnerable young person and thankfully I was sensitive so I took all that on board and um, thought how lucky we were and yes other people in the world weren't so lucky etc and um, and I also quickly not slowly quickly realized it wasn't our war you know and we shouldn't have been there and um, and I suppose I learned more about the history of Vietnam while I was there. Um, I then came home and um, after a, a terrible incident, uh, which I should tell you about, I we were asked to perform at a place called Nui Dat, which is the task force, frontline force for our um, fellas in Vietnam. And the nearest big town or city was Vung Tau, so we were helicoptered by, to Nui Dat and we were told that on this particular day we would do three shows but we would be out before sunset and back to Vung Tau. Fairly normal day for us in Vietnam. And uh, so out we went and it was a pretty big base and it was all happy because they were going to have concerts all day. And um, we uh, did two concerts... And during the second concert, whilst I was singing, I saw that there was a bit of... Um, I could feel tension and I could see that in the audience the that officers were disappearing from the audience. And uh, she knew who were officers and who weren't. And I thought, wow, and gee, that artillery in the background's getting heavier. I thought, gee, it's louder and louder and louder. And, oh, well, the show must go on, da-di-da-di-da really loud at times and uh, then other members of the audience were disappearing and nobody said anything we kept performing and after the uh, after the second show um, there was a little break and uh, thought, this isn't quite right all this artillery and going on I wonder what's happening oh well no one's everything must be okay you know well, past to know. Anyway, uh, during the third concert, it got very loud and uh, lots of people were disappearing quickly from the audience and, um, you know, from the side of the stage, our commanding officer's going, finish, finish, finish. I thought, oh, wow, finish. So we finished and uh, within minutes we were whisked away in helicopters. But in Vietnam... It, you know, anyone that's been there will tell you that it rains at the same time. This was four o'clock. It torrentially rained. Um, 
people were running everywhere, if you could see through the blinding rain a little bit. Um, sirens were wailing, really loud sirens, and it was obvious that um, something bad was happening just over there and uh, just beyond a little hill. And that was the Battle of Long Tan beginning. And um, it was really serious, you know, our evacuation. Unfortunately, Cold Joy was kind of, for want of a better word, kidnapped. So was I, temporarily. I was just about to get into the helicopter and um, some fellas came out of the rain, grabbed me, they were in a jeep, grabbed me. They said, we've been on patrol all day, we've missed your three concerts, you're going to give us a concert tonight. They grabbed Cold too. Anyway, the musicians grabbed me back and put me on the helicopter and uh, Cole stayed the night. He stayed in the Padre's tent and, um, you know, he, he was all right, but I can only imagine what sort of an evening he had. And we were safe and sound back in Vung Tau, but I stayed at a place where, you know, body bags were kept at um, a hospital, uh, the quarters for doctors and nurses and uh, that was an awful night for me too. Anyway, um, I didn't sleep and I wondered where Cole was and it was horrific. You know, your whole world goes before you wondering what's going on. The next day he arrived at about 11 o'clock, ashen-faced, and I think we hugged and um, within half an hour, you know, we had to do our job. And our duty was that morning to go and visit the injured people from that battle. Uh, 18 Australians were killed and um, many were badly injured. So we went to the 36th Evacuation Hospital, that's the name of the hospital in Vung Tau, and we um, never forget it because Colin and I stood outside like a back entrance of the hospital and um, I was... You know, I suppose I was in a bit of shock and um, I kept crying just a little bit, you know. Tears were rolling out without the sobbing and um, whatever that meant. And uh, Cole said, no, we mustn't cry. And he was pretty upset too, we mustn't cry. And and we didn't, you know, that thing when the sh you've got a job to do, we're performers, we had to go through that door and perform. So he grabbed his guitar and he said, you right? I said, yep, I'm right. Are you right? He said, I'm right. We went through the door and um, and sang, and um, that was uh, I'll never forget that, you know. So I suppose that affected me, but in a very positive way. It made me think, you know, such loss of life. That was our biggest battle, and um, it was a battle that you know the Australians weren't going to win but they did and um, you know for the other side their figures were absolutely horrific you know the amount of people who were killed and um, for me it meant loss of life regardless of who they were and to be so close to be so much part of a war I had no idea you know and um and I came home and um, just like Vietnam veterans who come home, I couldn't talk about it for a long while.
and uh, then I I did speak about it, but never really at length. Even now today, I, I I'd rather not talk about the gory details. But if you could imagine, as an inquisitive young person, uh, but thankfully a sensitive young person, I did take it all on board, and it um, it certainly went towards. Uh, made a great contribution to my politics or how I feel about the world and about my fellow human beings, you know. It it made a huge difference to me. I didn't come back as just another 17-year-old kid. I came back sort of thinking and feeling about lots of things that... um, because I had to, you know. It was... I don't know how young 19-year-olds got on. It must have been awful for them. And um, I know that for the rest of my life, I've um, I'm drawn to Vietnam veterans, and likewise, you know, they um, we have a rapport, and I think they know that I understand a little bit more than most people, and um, they're heroes for me. You know, they are genuine heroes, and. They uh, mean a lot to me and their families and I know that many of them are troubled and disturbed and um, their lives, you know, changed irrevocably and it's awful. It's very, very bad. I feel obliged but in the... In the uh, um, very willingly to to keep on understanding... Vietnam veterans and their families. I feel, you know, I'm not obsessed by it, but uh, I need and I want to keep helping where I can. It's really important to me. The most recent thing, I mean, there are always fundraising concerts over the years for them and reunions, get-togethers, and they have a day, you know, in August. It's it's Vietnam Day and, you know, we call it Long Tan Day and I always, you know, arrange a concert for for Vietnam veterans and, um, I mean, most of them have been married once, twice, maybe three times. They've got a pile of kids, grandkids and uh, there's a lot of illness in their families that, you know, governments don't seem to recognise. They are still troubled and, and in need of help. Um, so... The most recent thing that I do that involves Vietnam veterans is that I'm part of a, a small committee and we assess applications which come in. It's called the Sir Colin Hines um, Scholarship and he's a very famous man, soldier and great Australian and he left a legacy and um, it, a small amount of money goes to some Vietnam veterans' children's uh, children of Vietnam veterans uh, to help them further their education and uh, that that's terrific to be a part of that and uh, just keeps it all going for me and I don't yeah it's such a big part of my life since I was 17 that I can't imagine not having an association with Vietnam veterans just part of my life like the union's part of my life it's funny isn't it everything goes around in circles but um, the union I can't imagine not being a unionist or not um feeling proud of the union and not 
watching it, you know, watching it grow and watching it, you know, ebb and fall and, and do wonderful things for its members. I mean, I can't imagine that not being in my life. I too marched in the moratorium against Vietnam. I'm not for Australia's involvement in Vietnam at all, but I went, well, I think I told you I conned my father because I wanted to go overseas, but certainly once I was there and I learned, I made it my business to learn more about Vietnam and its turbulent history, I, I would still go to a war zone if invited today to perform for Australian troops because even if I didn't agree with their involvement, they are there doing a job and um, if that helps them, I think that um, that ca can go in hand in hand with being opposed to a war. So the Union was very opposed to Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War as were, as was half of Australia at least. Um, but I can easily reconcile going there as a performer but still feeling anti our actual involvement. I find that easy to deal with. All of the FACE concerts, there was a body of people called Forces of Australia Committee for Entertainment, and that was a body of people set up by the government who, whose specific purpose was to send performers to Vietnam, performers and musicians. So I went as the second phase, part of the second phase concert and our conditions were as good as they could have been at the time, which is really a dumb thing for a unionist to say, but um, we were at war, we were fed well, we were looked after well. There was tremendous amount of ignorance about how to look after performers, though, from from the government's point of view, um, which I believe actually in in within a few years, I think the union did have some kind of policy about performers going to Vietnam because ultimately performers went for agents who were making lots of money in Vietnam and performers were going and I think that when that happened the union had to step in because the agents weren't treating weren't necessarily not all of them but a lot of them weren't treating the performers properly I did, do believe that the face concerts the government concerts we were looked after as well as we could be and um, when they said to my mother she'll be alright, we'll look after her well, they did the fact that we were so close and part of virtually the Battle of Long Tan could never have been foreseen and um, we were whisked away but I think that the truly bad treatment of performers happened uh, in the late 60s that's true I remember now that's exactly what happened. The union needed to step in when when performers were going and not getting paid and you know but by the way the face government when I went for the government money it wasn't expected that we earn money we were doing a duty and um, we were paid a dollar a day.
and all we could eat. <laughs> Powdered egg. <laughs> no, it was good food. When I came back, still 17 and still performing and still making records and appearing on, you know, the variety shows and the live music shows were it was quite plentiful. They were really healthy, halcyon days and we we all wish they were the same now because, I mean, there's here we are, 2004, and there's not one variety television show on which to sing a song unless it's kind of daytime advertorial shows, I think they're called. But um, there's no real music, live music show as such in all of Australia, which is kind of disgraceful. Um, but... In the 60s and 70s, we had terrific amount of um, live performance work and we had a terrific amount of television. And um, the show that most young performers, you know, longed to appear on was Bandstand. And I was, you know, one of the lucky people. And I became a member of the Bandstand family early on and, you know, once again the youngest one and... Um, and I just kept on appearing on that show and I didn't realise the impact that it had all over Australia but it kept setting more stages for us to to keep touring and um, presenting more records and it had a long life I, I can't remember how many years it went for but it had a terrific life, Bandstand but there were shows like Saturday Date there was IMT in Melbourne tonight there was a Sydney Tonight show there was Countdown, there was The Ghost Show. There, there were many shows to present ourselves on. And um, they were great times. And at the same time, that kind of produced touring, as I said, and it also uh, went hand-in-hand hand with the New South Wales club scene, which in its infancy, um, you know, happened in the 60s, and then became a really healthy professional I mean, people who didn't understand the club scene were very quick to, to put it down. But at the height of the really good, healthy times, there were wonderful spaces in which to perform. And in these spaces were great bands of musicians, sometimes big bands. There were specified rehearsal times. There were great conditions. There were good pr production values. There were... Um, there was work for everybody, it seemed. And we'd go from one gig to another. Um, we worked hard and it there were just healthy times where a sense of professionalism and um, work ethos was very, very strong. Unfortunately, you know, when things are really good, it's like greed takes over. And um, some people who looked after like some agents and some people who were looking after clubs got greedy and um, values and mm, things deteriorated and it was a rather insidious really because it didn't have happen overnight but it went from a very healthy professional scene insidiously it developed into a very unhealthy uh, non-working uh, scene where and here we are, what I say 2004 again, and there's hardly a club scene to speak of. It, it's very sad, and um, conditions have 
swindled. Um, people in real terms are earning less money than ever. And it's a great example of, I feel, variety performers, independent performers, whatever you like to call us, had the opportunity to um, unify, to think as, you know, to get together and talk about the demise of the club industry. It does still exist, but in a very small way. And several times as a union we tried to make opportunities for performers to get together and talk about it. But I don't know if this happens in any other part of the industry, but variety performers, generally speaking, um, would rather not have that power themselves. They seem to gladly give it to their agents or to club bookers. And I don't think they realised that they were giving themselves away. They gave their power away. And maybe they thought because they were independent, they didn't need a union. They didn't... I'm all right. I earn much more than the union award, so I'm okay. But if too many people think like that, it's natural, isn't it, that conditions disappear virtually. And um, and except for, you know, a few people like me who will say, no, that's wrong, you can't treat us like that. It seems to me that some performers just let themselves get treated badly and they don't need to, you know. This union is stronger than it's ever been and it's always here to help, but for whatever reason they choose not to ask for help. So thankfully, even though variety performers, independent performers, didn't seem to want to use the union to help them very much. The the union was always there and working tirelessly behind the scenes. I know because I was, you know, on so many committees at the time and, and could observe all the hard work they did. I think one of the times that um, variety performers thought pretty well as one and they got really angry was the influx of imported artists who came here, particularly during the 70s and were flooding the clubs. And they were, there's no doubt, no matter how you argued it, debated it, they were doing us out of work. And... um, the union formulated a policy, we called it the three-to-one policy, and for every um, overseas performer, and by the way, the overseas performer needed to be, had to be, according to us, someone well-known, an act of distinction, a performer of distinction. Um, And in that case, that would be okay by us, but there needed to be three supporting Australian acts. And that worked really well. Um, the government of the day understood and they they thought on our recommendation they would allow big names into the country but unknowns who couldn't really fill a, a lounge room, let alone a club. Uh, they couldn't come, you know. And, of course, prior to that, agents had been booking these performers who really were here just on a holiday, the unknown ones. But we Australians were the one who, ones who were putting the bums on the seats. We were the ones. So you understand how that worked. Anyway, um, when it got out of control, the union once again stepped in and, and 
the performers were really on side and as one. But unfortunately, um, things changed and that dwindled away because the government started ignoring our our idea, our policies really. And, um, you know, more and more overseas performers came in and it became very difficult for us. When I was 17, I had enough money to buy a little car and I bought a Mini Minor. One of my first jobs, along with my musical director, my piano player, was to drive to Newcastle for two nights to perform at a very big club. And um, I did my first show, all went well, the club was happy and they were happy to tell me that the next night was booked out as well, see you tomorrow night, yeah, yeah. Went back to the motel, woke up the next day at whatever and the phone rang and the man said, uh, why aren't you out of the room? Check out time is 10 o'clock. And I said, but I, I'm working here again tonight. And he said, yeah, we know you're doing a show, but you've got to get out, he said, because the club's not paying for, your, for two nights accommodation. You, you know, you've got to drive home after the show. And I said, but it's 10 o'clock and it's pouring rain. I don't know what we could do. Well, you know, what? And he said on the phone, he said, well, he said, um, I don't know. He said, why don't you ring up the club? They're the ones that make these rules. And a little bit of me told me that he was kind of on side with me, even though he was cranky. So I rang the entertainment director who was very rude and said um, yeah that's right he said we're not paying two knots accommodation he said uh, what do you mean you're worried about what you're going to do yeah it's raining he said it's not raining in the club come up in the club and have a few drinks and play the machines he said and you know before the show I said but it's 10 o'clock in the morning I go on at 10 30 tonight he said yeah yeah well all the other acts do that he said um, come up the club and I said but I can't come to the club. And he said, why? And I said, because I'm only 17 and I'm not allowed into your club legally. He said, oh, we could pull a few strings and get you in. I said, but I don't like, I don't want to do that, you know. And, of course, then I'm sounding like a princess. You know, I don't want to do that. I wasn't being a princess at all. And um, But he made me feel, he wanted me to feel that way. And, you know, it was one of the first times in my life I actually felt really, really angry. And I thought, this is all so wrong. You don't treat people like this is so bad. And I said, uh, he said, see, so you better get yourself here. And I said, oh, look, I'll be there for my show tonight. And I didn't tell him what I was doing. And he said, you're going to check out of the motel? I said, yep. I thought it all through. I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I thought I will be there for the show. So I got off the phone and I wouldn't use the motel phone and I checked out, went to a public phone and I rang up a man called Cole Voigt and I had his card in my purse. He was the organiser, the variety organiser. I said, oh, Mr Voigt, call me Cole. He said, I said, I've got this problem, bloody, bloody, blah, and told him, he said, ah, oh, you can't have people try... He said, that's a disgrace. He said, um, um, I said, I thought of something and I had thought of a plan meanwhile. Anyway, with his help, I thought of a great plan. 
certainly with his help and knowing that no matter what I did I would have the union support so that buoyed me with great courage to um, so I um, had told him so I rang up the entertainment director again and uh, he said well have you checked out I said yeah I've checked out he said um, you will be here at 10.30 I said oh I don't know what I'm going to do and then I hung up so I wanted to leave him a bit confused knowing that he had a full club of you know patrons and at we checked in, my piano player and I checked in at another hotel, motel. And, and I made him go in so they wouldn't recognise me, so no one would know we were still there. I wanted the club to sort of think that I'd gone back to Sydney and to worry a little bit. Anyway, that's exactly what they did. And at about 10.15, I arrived at the club and the club director said, Oh, are you here? He said, I, I, I booked... Other acts, because I, I, I thought you might have gone back to Sydney. No one knew where you were. I said, no, I'm here to do my show. And I did the show. And um, I then recalled on stage, without mentioning any names, um, how it had been raining and I got kicked out of the motel that morning and that I was expected to drive back tonight. And from a 17-year-old girl <laughs> who looked about 12... <laughs> They didn't like that. The people in the audience didn't like that people should get treated like that. And I even asked them, I said, do you think that I should have been treated like that? And they said, no way, Patty, no way. I said, do you think that any worker should be treated like that? No way, no way. And I felt so powerful. <laughs> you know, I felt really powerful knowing that all the time, no matter what I did, I was going to be all right because Cole Wade had said, you do that, you'll be right, I promise you, you'll have our total support. So I, um, do you know, I came off stage and they refused to pay me then because I'd been a bit of a smart aleck on the microphone, they said. And I said, oh, I was just telling the story of what happened and all the patrons were <laughs> thinking how wonderful it was that I told them this story and they didn't like the fact that the entertainment director or the club was responsible for treating people so poorly. So I walked out of the club and I didn't have my money and um, then I went back. I thought, no, I can't leave the club, I've got to get my money. So I went back and sat in the foyer and told anybody who asked what I was doing there, I said, I'm waiting to be paid. And hundreds of people asked me, what are you doing here? I'm waiting to be paid. They refused to pay me. And you can imagine the commotion that that caused. And I must tell you that I really was pretty shy, you know, until that day, until that night. And um, But I knew I was right. And I knew that that was not the way to treat people and that was basic human human rights, you know, down the drain. If I allowed, if I allowed that, that was no good. <clears throat> so I sat... And eventually I was paid and they wouldn't but they wouldn't give me any money for the motel. So I thought Union will fix that up. So we um, stayed the night, drove back the next day and um, of course the union organised that they pay me properly for the motel and the meals that I had. Everything was taken care of and I'm really pleased to say that from then on any time an artist's worked or performer worked in Newcastle 
they were paid overnight accommodation even if they did choose to drive back that night they could still stay and have a comfortable rest having done a show because as I said in those days it was like at least four hours drive maybe five and that's very unhealthy to drive that distance so I came back and I felt really good about that that I'd helped me but I was about to help others and um and I told my father, oh, of course, my father was thrilled. Yes, that's the way, that's the way. You've got to think of others. Now you're a real unionist, a real little trade unionist. You know, he went on and on and mum was tickle pink. And then that was that. And, of course, you know, the next rest of the story is that Cole Voight-Rang said, do you think you'd like to join a committee? <laughs> uh, age 17 and, um, you know, I joined my first committee. I didn't know what hit me. The meetings were at um, Stanley Street, walking up the rickety stairs, thinking, oh, well. I was a bit excited, but had no idea what to expect. And, and I walked in and I thought, I know this sounds would sound really rude, but I thought in a way that I was in an old men's home, you know, because there were people who were much, much older than I and... <laughs> They seemed to really labour the point, you know, about the conversations were pretty slow. And I realised, though, that I came home and said to my mother and father, it's a bit slow. And Dad says, no, take it all in, you know, there's a reason for that. There's always a reason for these things. And, of course, it was to give everyone the opportunity to have a say. And that's really how it worked, you know. I was used to people kind of talking over each other. And that happened too and there were some wonderful arguments and debates and I didn't see any physical stuff. Maybe there was, but I didn't see any. And But they were exciting meetings too, even though at first I thought they were dull. There were some terrific times and there were um, some good uh, disputes going on in those times. Really good. I mean, not all meetings were really, really interesting for me because maybe, you know, there were things that were discussed that weren't pertinent to me at all. But I, some things really interested me and they were about my fellow performers and I really wanted to go. I thought that there it was a great organisation and I, maybe for the first time, you know, the incident of... Um, <laughs> the club in Newcastle that m buoyed me and that made me understand the need and the reason for unions you know firsthand I had experience of why it was important to have a body who supported you and who looked after our rights and um, joining com the committee at the time uh made me feel even more so. I heard examples of people being treated badly, you know, meeting after meeting. Some horrible things were happening to people. But invariably, you know, the union helped. And I thought, gee, without the union, you know, I kept thinking, without the union, they wouldn't have that help. And that's um, how I, I thought. And it for me, I had the need and the want to continue going to these meetings. It, um, it became, very quickly became a part of my life and um, I'm sure I missed a lot of meetings because of my work, but it was an important part of my life.
still is, of course. In the late 60s, early 70s, you know, the, the Australian entertainment industry that I was involved in was quite healthy. Um, there were there were other people like me on the committee and we all wanted the same thing. We wanted Australia to have the right to be Australian. Things never change, do they? And we wanted uh, our industry to have some kind of protection. We wanted... We didn't want unknown performers coming into Australia and we fought hard for that. Um, there was a, a good feeling, but at, behind us was a government that really didn't support us, we felt, and didn't support us at all, really. And we figured that some people in the government had never even been to the theatre, you know, let alone support it. And, of course, along came um, a man called Gough Whitlam, who led the Australian Labor Party at the time, and... Uh, Senator Doug, well, he became Senator Doug McClelland, but a man called Doug McClelland um, invited several performers, including myself, many performers actually, to take part in an advertisement. And of course, that became the very famous It's Time commercial for the Australian Labor Party. None of us, I can honestly say, none of us realised, you know the enormity of what we were doing. We knew why we were doing it, but we had no idea that that song, that theme would stay with us forever. Uh, I'm really pleased it did. And um, that for me personally, it's been um, quite a crusade for me because even today, uh, when gorgeous Goff has a birthday or a special dinner for Goff, I'm invited to go and sing It's Time for him. So each time I fight back tears and each time I sing it's time and, uh, you know, other Labor dinners, May days all over Australia, I get to sing it's time and uh, it's still a buzz for me. I still get the goosebumps and uh, can relive, recall those days very well. I know that some people were victimised for appearing in that commercial honestly don't know if I was. I don't know if I wasn't booked at particular places because of that commercial. Um, I kept hearing that the reason I didn't get to such and such a place was because of that commercial. I really can honestly say I didn't let it worry me because there was so much... I was working so hard anyway. But um, without a doubt, the conservative people in our society really, if they had power and they were able to not book you, that was happening, unfortunately. I consider that I'm very fortunate to have begun my career at a time where work was plentiful, opportunities were there, there were many television shows. Radio, certainly in the 60s and for most of the 70s, Australian radio by and large was um, pretty supportive of Australian talent. Proud of it, you know, homegrown and... People were writing songs, Australian songs, and um, Australians were having some success overseas. So that that was a great time, and it was a lucky time, a fortunate time for people like me to have their careers, to begin their careers. But 
no one could have foreseen or we certainly didn't ever prepare for the day when there wouldn't be those television shows, there wouldn't be those opportunities for young performers. I mean, what have we got now? We've got Australian Idol, which, you know, I won't even comment about, and pop stars. They're not opportunities, really, for, for many people. They're not opportunities at all. And um, that that's disappeared the time of golden opportunity. Um, the club industry, for probably more reasons than I've specified, that's fallen over pretty well. Um, there's more money going into clubs and yet, you know, certainly not for performers. For variety performers, generally speaking, um, they've allowed, certainly not the union, they've allowed a lot of conditions to disappear. Their money in real terms has dwindled. Um, there were attempts by people at some times to create an award system and um, I think the Mo Award system, they all begin with great intentions, but it ended up, uh, in the eyes of many performers, it ended up neglecting, you know, the very performers who started off the Mo Awards. And uh, now there are some other awards called the ACE Awards, which probably reflect um, the state of the industry, certainly, you know, the young performers around it reflects our industry and as part of our industry, the ACE Awards, but I just wish our industry was bigger to be reflected on. <laughs> There's not much of an industry anymore. Variety performers have always been able to adapt and change according to the times and uh, so maybe there aren't, you know, the amount of clubs, registered clubs around who book entertainment anymore, but there are many variety and independent performers who became fantastic street performers. They do wonderful things like abseil down buildings as a performance. They do quite a variety of work, to coin a phrase. And um, their, their needs are looked after by the union. You know, they, they were a terrific part. Um, many variety performers took part in the Olympics, 2000 Olympics, and um, the union, I know I was part of, the negotiating team who um, formulated policy and awards for for independent independent and variety performers in the Olympics, and um, that was very hard fought. We had um, talk about my first union meeting as a seventeen year old. You know, there I was as part of part of a negotiating team, sitting opposite you know CEOs and. Uh, very powerful people who were part of the Olympic lobby and of course they didn't want to pay performers anything didn't want to pay us anything and um, fortunately we fought long and hard and uh, David Atkins who was the director of entertainment at the time maybe I shouldn't envy his position because as a fellow performer I can only imagine or at least hope that his mind was divided or his loyalties were being tested because um, he had to work against performers in this instance and uh, side with the Olympic people. But fortunately, uh, we won and uh, we won the right the rights for our performers. It was a, a terrific victory for us and performers worked and were paid accordingly. Here we are in 2004. We have... 
a government that isn't union friendly. Gosh, how nice am I to say that? <laughs> it's as nice as I can be, I'm afraid. But um, certainly, it seems, don't have our interests at heart. But in my opinion, the union is more pertinent and relevant than ever in times like this. Um, at any time, there are issues that, you know, we fight, we talk about, we lobby governments for. At the moment, the free trade issue is looming large on our horizon and it doesn't look very good for us. Um, to lose the right to express the fact that we're Australian in Australia would be worse than sad. That's That would be a horrible thought. We still don't have performance copyright. The fight for that won't ever stop till we've got it. Um, they're just two issues, quite apart from the usual ones where people's rights and conditions are, are fought for and maintained and improved all the time. Uh, so in other words, you know, for people who wonder, gee, what does the union do for them? You know, please read the magazines and um, please ring the union, come into the union and see all the good work they do. So I joined joined the union when I was 14 and was helped along the way quite a lot. And when I was 17, I became active. And um, I didn't know whether I'd be able to make a contribution, but I knew that what I was doing was the right thing because it was for other people just like me who would need help. Um, that feeling hasn't stopped within me. It's, it's only grown, actually. And um, I suppose everything goes full circle. And now I still perform lots and I still call upon the union for help. But I also teach young performers and it's great to encourage them both in their performing skills but encourage them about what rights they have and lots of them are really savvy they're fantastic and um, at our graduations day it's great to meet them and, and and feel proud of them and wish them all the best and you know do that quiet little prayer gee I wish there was more work for them but at least they can join the union and know that when they do work, they're going to have a terrific bunch of people behind them who are totally on side and who care about them, you know, tremendously.